Numbers 15, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you have come into the land and you are to, that you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or as a freewill offering, or in your appointed feasts, to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd or from the flock, then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil, the one-fourth of a hin of wine, and drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb or for a ram you shall prepare a grain offering two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one third of a hin of oil and as a drink offering you shall offer one third of a hin of wine as a sweet aroma to the lord and when you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering to the Lord, you shall uh, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hin of oil. And you shall bring as the drink offering half a hin of wine as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Bear with this. There's a reason here. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, and for each lamb or young goat. According to the number that you prepare, so you shall do with everyone according to his number. All who are native-born shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, or whoever is among you throughout your generations and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law. And one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So a few things to examine here. To begin with, I give you the backstory of their coming to uh, the promised land and being told to go in and examine what the Lord has given and prepared for them. The spies, the negative report, the rebellion, then the judgment of God. You're going to have to stay out. This section, immediately following all that, begins with the promise from God that they are going to go into the land. I think it's very, very significant because we are a self-defeating creature. We, we hear and do and say things and we become more convinced of our experience than what the word of the Lord has promised us. These people have been told for centuries, millennia at this point, that you're going to go into the land of Canaan. 
You're going to conquer the people that live there, and it's going to be your possession. This is your land, and I'm going to give it to you. They come to the first opportunity to do it as a nation, and they shrink away from it. Then they try to do it on their own, and they're defeated in the process. So now they're going to have to function under that curse and judgment of the Lord for 40 years until this generation dies, or the completion of 40 years, until this generation dies. And the new generation is going to come here again. And it's very important for them to remember the promises of the Lord. You know, think about how detailed this would be. If I am telling you, you know, I'm not, but if I'm telling you, you're going to move to a certain state and you're going to buy a certain house. And when you get there, I want you to paint it like this. And I want you to, you know, organize the lawn like that. And I want you to, you know, build the attached garage in such a way. And 40 years pass between here and there. It'd be very easy to let all of that time and the lack of the occurrence to convince you that's never going to happen. Not enough of an illustration. Have you had the thing that the Lord told you in the beginning of your walk with him about something he was going to do in your life and it didn't happen? You know, the freedom from an addiction. The change in a behavior. Right? The loss of a behavior. The addition of a behavior in your life. You know? Never been able to develop a really solid devotional life. And you kind of throw up your hands like, this is never going to happen for me. Yeah, other people do that, but I haven't had success and victory in it. In the midst of their failure, God says, so anyway, when we get to the completion of my plan, this is how I want you to behave. These are the specifics of how I want you to perform sacrifice. This is a very detailed explanation of all of the measurements of flour and grain and offerings and drink offerings that are going to take place inside the land of Canaan, which they're not going to have for you know almost another 30 years. God's telling them in detail how to conduct themselves. I think there's a tremendous lesson in that for us about the things that the Lord says to our heart and clinging to them. No matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you're defeated, you need to focus on what the Lord... Okay, I'm putting it on you. We need to focus upon what the Lord is telling us and promising us because right, we have that struggle where we're looking at it like, it's not going to happen in my life, right? And then our enemy is right there behind that message, which comes right from our own heart, reinforcing that. Saying, no, in fact, you're right. It's not going to happen for you. And he'll even point out other people. See that person over there, mature, strong Christian, who you've put under the microscope and you've watched them for years. And you've come to determine, no, they are in fact victorious and walking and strong and living. Well, that's never going to be you. He'll grind you right into the dust. You think, oh, that's, you know, taken a little too far. I'll remind you. gives me the shivers when I think about it. I'll remind you again that John recorded for us <clears throat> that Satan put it into the heart of Judas 
to betray Jesus. According to the scripture, the devil can't read your mind. But according to the scripture, he can manipulate your heart. Right? He can turn, and he knows whether he's manipulating your heart when he whispers, however he does that, whatever it is, into your heart and mind, and then you act according to the suggestion. You confirm for him, we confirm for him that his message made it all the way through. It's very important to remember God speaks very clearly to the nation of Israel and to us as his children, in particular from his word. If you will open the book and read the word of God, you will discover it's speaking to you. Right? If, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I've done that, Will, and I didn't have that sensation. Well, the first thing you have to overcome is being a child of God. Right? I, I don't mean to beat anybody up this morning. But Jesus gives us some definitions in the New Testament. You've got a bunch of religious people who are leading the nation of Israel, but they have no relationship with God at all. Right, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of those hypocritical, pompous, arrogant religious leaders, they don't have any relationship with God. How do we know that for certain? They murdered Jesus, right? They were liars. They were manipulative. They were thieves. Jesus said they were sons of the devil. Okay, I, I mean... You know, there are some really crass words and phrases in our culture, you know. I'm being cautious here, but, you know, they even begin with, like, you know, son of. Jesus looks these men in the face and says, you're sons of the devil. That is as harsh as you can get, right? Calls them sons of the devil. And he confirms, the reason I know you're sons of the devil is because you speak his language. Lies. The devil is a liar and you guys are liars. And you're murderers. Just like your father, the devil. Okay? They're listening, as religious men, they're listening to the voice of the devil continuously and obeying that. The children of God that he speaks to are, many of them, tax collectors, prostitutes, drunkards. He has nothing harsh to say to them. He calls them out of their sin, right? He doesn't say, hey, it's fine, it's cool that you're living that way. He doesn't give them a pass. But because of their humility and their honesty and their willingness to accept his word and his life and his kingdom, they become children of God. When you are a child of God, then this letter... This book is written to you, right? H have you ever read like some old letter, you know, some family thing it was written to your grandfather or, you know, your grandmother, you know, he was away at war, wrote it home and, you know, you can get a little bit of it, but there are things you don't know and don't understand. What? Letter wasn't written to you. It takes someone who understands all 
that was in the letter, every nuance of their reference and what they're saying to explain to you what's there. If you're reading this book going, I'm not really getting anything out of this. Have you surrendered your heart to Christ and become a child of God? Because that's how you begin the process of understanding this letter. And it's as simple as that. Jesus laid it out for us. You want to be a Christian? You want to be a child of God? You ask. Confess that you're a sinner in need of his forgiveness and salvation. Ask him to forgive your sins, to give you his Holy Spirit, to make you a child of God. Boom, done. I didn't feel anything. So what? Doesn't mean a thing. Some people have great emotional experiences, great supernatural spiritual experiences. Others have little to none, right? And we see that in the scripture. You, you've got Saul of Tarsus, who's on the way to Damascus to murder Christians because he hates Christianity, and the Lord appears to him in a brilliant light, blinds him, knocks him to the ground. Dramatic conversion, right? You've got other people that simply make the confession, you're the Christ, and you're a child of God. Quick as that. You ask, and you will be given eternal life. That's how that occurs. And then this letter means something entirely different as you read. It's astonishing how different it becomes. You know, I, I've had that conversation with many young Christians who came here for days and weeks and, you know, made the confession. Don't really get it. Can you explain this to me? Can you show me what this means? And I, I do as best I can. But then there comes that moment where they own it and they personally pray. Now open the book. And it takes on an entirely different meaning. Being a child of God. These promises that are being made to the nation of Israel are to his children. Saying, despite the fact that you've screwed up and you're presently in the process of experiencing my punishment for your rebellion and disbelief, I still want you to know all of these promises are going to come to you. You're, you're going to experience all of these things. It's actually a remarkable piece of scripture. It's so, it's so interesting how you, know, you can be like turning the pages and you come to a moment like that and it's almost like that is completely out of place. Like why in the world, given you know, the rebellion and the punishment that we just were in in chapter 14 and I turn the page and now he's talking about how to offer sacrifices once we get into the land? I mean, why? Because it serves as a reminding promise to the people. I'm going to finish what I have started. That was, is my life verse. Uh, you know, you can use it too. It's, I haven't copy written in or anything. But. Philippians 1.6, where Paul tells the church at Philippi, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, all the way to the end, the Lord is going to continue to work in your life. When I first really surrendered my life to the Lord, I was raised in a Christian home and experienced all of that. But 
rebelled against it, went out on my own. And when I finally had an encounter with the Lord where I knew he was real and surrendered my life to Christ, then the struggle began to try and walk with the Lord. And I, I felt this way. I was defeated and, and I, because I was failing. And uh, there was a pastor, Gary Bowden, in Keene, New Hampshire, who was meeting with me weekly and discipling me. And uh, after listening to me a lot, he says, I want you to memorize that, Philippians 1.6. And I would show up the next week and you know, whine and cry about how, you know, I quit cigarettes like 14 times this week. And I just, you know, I just, I'm like, you know, freaking out about it. I just you know, nearly got in a fight with a co-worker and just, I can't wait. What kind of Christian am I if I'm a Christian? You know, I just, I'd, I would just be wailing my failures. And he would listen patiently and then say, okay, so what does Philippians 1, 6 say, Will? And I'd be like, okay, I know where we're headed. You know? He'd say, no, 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 let's go through it. Who began this work in you? Was it you? And I'd say, no, it was, it was the Lord. Okay. So, so who's going to complete the work now that it's been started? Is it going to be you, Will, or is it going to be the Lord? And I'd have to say, it's, it's going to be, how long is it going to take, Will? So, well, it's going to be taking place the rest of my life. Right, right. Rest your, so are you a failure? And I'd have to confess, well, no. I mean, I have failed, right? But I'm not a failure in that Christ is the one who began this process. Not will. I'm in response to that process, right? But he's the one who's changing and working and molding and fashioning all along the way. And so right here at Numbers 15, the Lord steps into the middle of their failure and says, by the way, guys, we are going to go all the way to the promised land. And you as a nation are going to be there. And this is how I want you to perform the sacrifices for your sins. It's actually a very reassuring passage for them. Now, I want you to notice something else, which has very present-day modern application. We hear a lot of politicians and a lot of preachers talking about the Bible as though they know about the Bible. And I just want to be clear about that. There's a lot of preachers who don't know about the Bible. Now, that may sound very arrogant you know, as a preacher to stand here and talk about other preachers that way. But when you can clearly look at things that are being said, you know, regarding, for instance, social justice, that's a massive issue right now, right? I hope you understand that there is, is no justice if you add any word to justice. If we stick something on it, social justice, where does justice come from? Right? That, that's the key question. Within our culture, if you listen to the culture, they focus on man-made laws. That's what they're doing. See, they, they don't consider crime was committed. We have the individual that committed the crime. The resulting punishment is A, B, or C, whatever, right? They don't focus on it that way. What they do is they go, 
crime was committed, perhaps we have the individual that did it. Now we need to examine what are the social mitigating circumstances that caused that individual to possibly have committed that crime. That, that's not justice. That's not justice for you and me, right? If we're talking afterwards and you tell me where you live and then tomorrow night I go to your house and I steal all of your belongings, imagine the betrayal when you find out it's me, that pastor that you went and hurt, and he stole all my stuff. <clears throat> and now that I've been caught and you're you know, trying to get your things back and trying to see justice done, the courts start weighing in with, well, we have to seriously consider how Will was raised and the trouble that he went through in life. Are you aware of the hardship? That, and you're thinking, I don't care. I want my stuff back. You know what I'm saying? You need justice to be performed. And the reason that the infraction of the law continues to grow in our culture is because everyone committing those crimes understands they're not going to weigh this out according to justice. If or when I get caught, there's a very good chance we're going to look at it through the lens of social justice. Okay, pause all of that thought for a minute. Whether you agree with me or you're completely offended with me, Pause that thought for just a moment, and now let's take that curve and go way out on the end, right? Because way out on the end of that curve is we can find any reason to dismiss any behavior if we're all going to agree upon it. No? This is why Amsterdam has legalized everything, you guys prostitution and drugs and whatever it's that's your business i mean it's it's what you're doing and you're not harming anyone by it it's just what you're pursuing no no you are harming people by it you don't understand the prostitute is enslaved by the man who will pay for her prostitution enslaved by it he's holding her under bondage with his money She's being injured in the process. Those that produce and sell drugs are enslaving people in order to get them to the market. Anyone who participates in it at any level is participating in harming everyone further down the food chain. The reason we are sliding on that curve is because we've rejected God and his law. If, if you think I've separated from this passage and I'm running out on the rabbit trail here, follow me for a minute because I haven't deviated from this one iota. The, the problem at the root of that is saying God is not the ultimate authority. Mankind is. That's the very root of the problem. Our justice system is founded, whether you're aware of it or not, in the Ten Commandments of the Scripture. That's where this whole nation's 
justice, judgment, you know, court system is founded. Where it came off the rails is when we rejected that and, you know, started saying to one another, what's your opinion on this subject? What's your opinion on this subject? What's your opinion on this subject? And as soon as enough of us agreed on a particular thing, disagreeing with the scripture, we changed the law and said, all of us agree on this point, so therefore God is wrong and we are now right. And the next subject came and we all agreed together and God is also wrong on this point. And the next subject came along and we all said, and God is wrong on this point. And our culture is going to continue to do that. Deteriorating justice until there is no justice. I mean, are you, you are aware that right now there are larger and larger groups of people in the United States that are pushing for the legalization of all drugs, all of them, unrestrained. Heroin, LSD, ecstasy, cocaine, legalize everything. That, that's already in the mindset of our law makers. They're having big discussions about this. You go, that's crazy. Marijuana is legal in this state. You know, most of us sitting in this room, at least at some time, have had the mindset of, oh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's amazing how much the popular culture thinks about certain things until they've created it for themselves. You know, we started selling marijuana in this state over the counter as recreational drug this week. Just walk right in, 21 years old, buy it just like you can be. The mindset that that's, you know, an innocent thing, it's not harmful. Maybe some of you sitting here this morning even still smoke that, use that. You need to read the studies, okay? <clears throat> a lot of people argue with me on the subject about, like, pain relief, okay? <clears throat> well, here's the deal. And, and if you're thinking that it's a good pain reliever, and what I'm about to say, you may immediately, like, contradict me. <clears throat> Marijuana doesn't relieve pain at all, okay? It doesn't relieve pain at all. It will make you happy temporarily but it doesn't take the pain away it doesn't even block the pain receptors it will stupefy you literal terminology it will stupefy you but it doesn't actually receive the pain the pain signal is still traveling through you're still experiencing it it actually Okay, largest, largest study, like a lot of people act like, oh, it hasn't been studied. Largest study, I'm not dwelling on marijuana. I'm dwelling on the law. Follow me with this. <clears throat> a lot of people say there haven't been extensive studies done. It. There have been massive studies done on this over and over again. Whether you're aware or not, 10 years, United Kingdom, more than 1,000 participants in it. At the end, the United Kingdom determined in the mid-90s Anyone that had used marijuana more than seven times would never be allowed in their military. 
anyone that had ever smoked marijuana would never be allowed to fly their aircraft because of the negative effects, the permanent, permanent negative effects upon their cognitive responses, their ability to think clearly. Seven times, not getting in their military. One time, you're not flying any one of our multi-million dollar aircrafts. Forget that. Wild. Largest study ever conducted regarding marijuana done in Australia. Participants from all over the world, more than 1,500 people participated in the study from beginning to end. Okay, They started with over 2,000. And when they were completed the study, 1,500 people had remained in the study for the whole process. They were looking at two things, the effectiveness of pain relief using marijuana, and number two, the effectiveness of marijuana to deliver people from opiate addiction. What they discovered is in 100% of the cases, 100% of the cases, Marijuana increased the pain that the people were dealing with and it dramatically decreased their cognitive ability to deal with the pain. We're not even talking about the opiate yet. So increases the pain and makes it harder for them to think clearly about how to handle their pain. Should I take Tylenol right now? or inject this heroin. They aren't thinking clearly, and they're making poor choices. It dramatically increased the number of people using opiates. It, it delivered 0% of opiate users from the use of opiates. Marijuana dramatically increased the use of opiates, increased pain, and decreased the ability to deal with pain. Largest study ever conducted in marijuana. And we just legalized it. Why? Because all of the flower children who've gone to seed and are in our legislature agreed to change the law. Why? Because they enjoy marijuana. Right? For instance, rewind, right? To 1930. And we had a prohibition on alcohol. And everybody, what, looks at the violence that was occurring at the time. Right? you got Al Capone and all of his henchmen and all of that weirdness that was going on with the bootleggers. You know, Kennedy's move from bootlegging into politics, but we'll discuss that at another time. <clears throat> and they said, well, look, the violence that's occurring with alcohol is so bad, we need to legalize this. So they legalized Alcohol, and everybody goes, whew, things are better now. Do you understand the billions of dollars that we lose every single year in this nation through the consumption of alcohol? Oh, but the taxation, right? We make so much money on taxation. The money we lose eclipses the money we make in taxation hundredfold. The number of families that are broken. The number of single mothers that are now dependent upon the state that we're all paying for because of alcohol. The number of jail sentences. The number of deaths 
we spend something like $160 billion in America on household accidents due to alcohol consumption. Fell down the stairs, right? Smacked my head on the pipe, you know, ran something over with the lawnmower. All kinds of accidents that occur. We're not talking about roadway accidents. That's another whole statistic. Alcohol is unbelievably expensive for this nation. Marijuana is going to be hundreds of times worse, and we already know it because we've watched a series of states legalize it ahead of us, and they are losing money hand over fist. Statistics are already being compiled. 1,200% increase and the number, 1,200% increase in the number of occasions in Colorado where legal Colorado marijuana was purchased and shipped outside Colorado through the United States Mail Service. Felonies that are being convicted, you know, uh, are, are committed that we now have to have law enforcement for that we're paying for. 12, 1,200% increase. 786% increase in roadway fatalities due to marijuana consumption. But hey, we all agree that it's okay and we're going to allow it to happen. We're going to vote it in. Everybody can do it. How did I get this from this? There's going to be one law for everybody in the nation of Israel, whether they're a stranger or a native to the land. And it's going to be God's law. That's how God set it out. We're not going to shift the goalpost. We're not going to move any lines. God is going to define what is right and what is wrong, where the boundaries are, and everyone's going to live by it. That's what God said. So these politicians and these preachers, remember when I was on that point? Who are saying, oh, it's acceptable, it's fine. You know, if, if, it's, if it's homosexual lust, that's fine. You know, if, if it were a man who was married to a woman who was lusting after another, that's a sin. That's wrong. But if, but if one man is lusting after another, that's fine. So, so they all agree that it's fine, and everybody nods and agrees and even signs their name, and so therefore they've changed God's law. I have no animosity towards the homosexual. I have no animosity towards the man who's committing adultery. They need the same salvation I experienced when I surrendered my life to Christ. There is one law for us all. It is God's word. That's where we need to surrender ourselves. We need to turn our hearts over to him and let him rule our lives. Look at verse 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I bring, uh, land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. Now, if for any of you that are you know not familiar with how this works, the heave offering uh, was brought to the priests and presented. The priests would take it before the Lord and they would either lift it up or in a wave offering, they would literally wave it back and forth before the Lord as a presentation to the Lord. In the case of like uh, an animal that was butchered, 
it would be butchered and roasted, and then a portion might be burned to the Lord. The priest gets a portion, and then the person who brought it gets a portion. And the picture that God wanted painted is that the three people participating in the offering are all consuming a portion. It's like sharing a meal together. The priest gets his part. The offerer gets their part. God gets his part. God wanted it to be that the person who brought the offering had the sensation that I'm sharing a meal with God. I brought a portion to him, and he consumed his portion through fire. So this idea of a wave offering is that. It would be brought and lifted up and presented uh, towards the Lord, a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering, as a heave offering uh, of the threshing floor. That's where they uh, worked the wheat out of the stalk when they first harvested it. So, so harvested it. So you, uh, so shall you offer it up of the first of your ground meal. You shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Again. The same concept. God is telling them the, the act of worship and the way of sacrifice is going to take place once you've gotten in the land. But also, also, he's telling them about the prosperity they're going to experience when they get in the land. Right? If I'm telling you this in a modern sense and vernacular, and I say to you, when... You're making, you know, when you finally achieved coming into the promises and the will of God and you're making a quarter million dollars a year and you're sitting here right now like, wow, you know, a quarter million dollars. When you're making a quarter million dollars a year, this is the portion I want you to give to God. And if you're completely impoverished and living in a tent and traveling through the barren wilderness, there's a fantasy a, an imagination, a hope that springs in your heart and mind of we're going to be so prosperous someday that we would be able to take these big portions of what we receive from the Lord and give it to him. Again, before it ever arrives, the God, you know, God is saying, when you receive my promise, when you get the fulfillment of my, you know, my promise and your obedience then this is how I want you to cooperate with me with what I've given you. If you sin unintentionally, in verse 22, and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation, the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priests shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them, for it is unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire, 
to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them because all the people did it unintentionally. Okay, the best way to understand that because most of them have been present as Moses has given the law, explained the law, raised up 70 leaders from amongst the nation of Israel who Moses would disciple and teach and explain the law even more thoroughly to, who they in turn would go and explain and expound upon the law to the people. So as a nation, they pretty much have a very solid understanding of God's law and his intentions within the law. You say, well, how could they possibly miss the mark at this point? How it closed that section was talking about the stranger who would come in amongst them, right? That would be the most obvious example. You're going to have somebody who comes and joins the nation of Israel. They can become Jewish religiously through a series of ceremonies. They are brought into the land. So now they're Jewish in their spiritual customs. They might not understand a certain thing and be doing something that's not according to the law. And it's, you know, considered they're part of the nation. So the whole nation is now guilty of this one person's infraction. Okay. Where it really begins to take place is once this generation is dying off and the next generation is being raised up and points have been missed along the way. They've just been reared in this religious culture, so they don't actually have the detailed knowledge of the law and the explanations of the law, so they might fall into misbehaviors in the process. When it's discovered, when it's realized that this sin in this particular area has been going on, then this is the practice that they're to go through to offer the sacrifice in order to experience the forgiveness of the Lord which puts a very heavy, heavy gravity on the, the culture as a whole. They understand, <clears throat> regardless, like I just went through that long illustration with all those different elements of the law in our culture, right? So, so this culture understands, no matter how far we might drift in the process, once we open the book and realize, oh, there it is, the book corrects everything. That's, that's significant, that we as a culture would understand that, that we as a culture would, would recognize you've got to open the book back up. And that's what's happened, right? A, a perfect example of this, right? Some of you, forgive me for pointing our elders out amongst us. How many of you went to school when the day was started in prayer, public school, right? How about that, guys? Open the Bible, pray, start the day. 1963, remove God from the public school. 1963 to 1973, 500% increase in violent crime in America. And everybody's standing around going, what happened? Open the book up. 
put your face back on these pages. Start looking at what particularly Christ said. Let it lead you back into the Old Testament and discover these things also. If the nation has failed unintentionally, turn your heart to the Lord. Seek out his process of forgiveness from the scripture and be healed as a people in a nation. What a remarkable thing that would be, right? Just write Jesus' name in on that ballot if you could. Rule the nation. It would change everything to see this nation turn its heart back to the Lord. Remarkable thing. You know, people talk about, oh, well, it wasn't Christian and its foundation. You know, a lot of these guys weren't Christian at all. They were just deists. Okay, I'll give you two names. Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson. Maybe. Maybe, right? Because some of the things they wrote leave you to go, hmm, huh, well, that's kind of weird. I disagree with you, but okay, I'll give you those two names. But let's throw all the names out except for one. George Washington, father of our nation, right? Take the time, download it, purchase it. Please read that man's prayer journal, right? Read the prayers he wrote down. Read the answers that came as a result. This was a Christian nation in its foundation. Without question, this was a Christian nation at its foundation. There were non-Christians here. There's no question about that. But guess what? Everybody was made to live under the guiding influence of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Everybody. Jamestown, when Jamestown was started, if you refused to go to church on the Sabbath, they could kill you. It was in their law. If you're going to live in Jamestown, you were required to go to church on Sunday. They referred to Sunday as the Sabbath under penalty of death. It never happened, you know. And even when people were tremendously under pressure and felt like they needed to go work in the field because it had been raining for a week and now it's the Sabbath and it's the one clear day and I got to go get the seed in the ground, their neighbors would come out and plead with them to come with them to church, promising them, we'll come out tomorrow together and we'll plant your seed together. You need to come worship the Lord with us. This nation functioned under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. We have dramatically departed from that. And now we're reaping what we have sown. Our culture is wildly out of control. Vladimir Putin yesterday published a lengthy article promoting Joe Biden. I don't know if you're aware of that. Yeah. Because Joe Biden's ideologies are so aligned with his, Vladimir Putin's, and the people of Russia and the communist state that Vladimir knows Russia will work very well with a nation led by Joe Biden. That should flip you out. Doesn't surprise me at all. Doesn't <laughs> Russian collusion right there. Anyway, <clears throat> sin unintentionally. Verse 30. But the person who does anything presump presumptuously, whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord 
and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Here's the thing. The cut off is the big question for a lot of scholars. Does it mean that emotionally and socially he'll be excommunicated and not allowed to participate? Does it mean he will be physically put out of the camp so that he's physically cut off? You can't be with us anymore. Does it mean that they would actually take that person and kill them? Capital punishment. If you know the law and you break the law, if it can be proven you knew this and you did this, and then is there an execution involved in the process? I don't know why scholars debate it, because the next passages answer that. It is execution. Don't be startled. Don't be startled, right? Because the way it's written could leave a scholar to interpret it as emotionally separated, physically separated, or separated through death. The way it's written out, it could be interpreted that way. And when we come to the New Testament, that's how you should take it. Because regardless of whether we sit in the pews and in the seats of the church, if we knowingly are violating God's word and God's law, we are automatically separated from fellowship with God. It, occur, it kills us. It kills our relationship with God. It will destroy you in the process. So, 32... Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation and put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. <clears throat> Don't misunderstand it. They know that this man has purposely and knowingly violated the Sabbath in rebellion, okay? He's got the attitude when they find him of, yeah, I know it's a Sabbath, so what? He, he's, he is defiantly breaking the Sabbath law. Their question isn't about, is this guy actually doing something that's worthy of punishment? No, the question comes down to what I just explained. Do we excommunicate him internally? Do we put him out of the camp? Or are we supposed to kill this guy? Like, what, what, is, what are we supposed to do here? That's why they're bringing him. To, he's already imprisoned, right? He's under guard. And they're, they're having to seek the guidance of the Supreme Court, literally. Moses is the, the final say. The 70 elders, they can bring it to them, and it goes up through the food chain until it reaches Moses. They've gone right to the Supreme Court with this issue about what are we supposed to do with this man. The Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. Now I want to explain again, partly because I enjoy the graphic and it drives the point home. But secondly, so that you'll accurately understand stoning. Okay, Stoning in this day and all the way up to Jesus' day is probably not like what you've seen depicted anywhere else. 
if a stoning was to take place, the men who were going to, the men who were going to stone him to death would grab baseball-sized rocks to begin with, and they would aim for the head. And as soon as it connected and stunned him and put him to the ground, they would move to two-handers where they're flinging them and smashing this person to the point where they cannot move at all. And then two or three or maybe four people would go to sometimes even like a rock wall and find a big stone and take it out, and all of them would bring it over together right over his head or chest, and everybody does the one, two, and three, fling it up in the air and just flatten that person's head or chest cavity. This isn't, this isn't pelted with rocks until you are mercilessly put to death. This is as quickly as possible. Put the person down and to death. Be done with the whole situation. For the mercy of the congregation and the mercy of the individual. Okay, I, I'm not telling you with all of that graphic detail because I get a thrill out of it. The point is when someone has violated God's word and his law to this degree and now the death sentence has come, God wants that person to be sent to him as quickly as possible. Death row is an unthinkable torture. I just can't even believe what we're doing on both sides of this. The families that have to wait and suffer through the process of eventually perhaps seeing justice come to them. The, the individual who's committed the crime, who has to go through the process of, I'm going to be put to death. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Maybe not. Final reprieve. No, I'm going to the chamber. That's cruel. Justice system should work according to God's word. You just got to verify a few things. Was there a crime committed? Let's take murder. Yes, there was a murder committed. Okay. Did we find the person, right, who, beyond a reasonable doubt, has committed this crime? Yes, we have. Set the date. Make it soon and then make it quick. Finish the job, right? Look, you've been, let's say, a rebellious person who despised Christianity, didn't want to follow God. You committed that atrocity, and then you get caught, and now you've been sentenced. And somebody comes in and says to you, literally, in 10 days, in 30 days, you're going to stand in front of your maker. What are you going to be doing for the next 10, 30 days? Probably getting right with your maker. Or... Maybe you're going to settle it in your heart that you don't care and you're going to reject your maker. Two thieves at the cross, right? Both of them despised Jesus. One of them saw something in Jesus that made him realize this man's innocent. And he's my savior. And he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responds, I tell you that today you will be with me in paradise. There is grace for the worst of us. 
And we need to be people who promote that grace. you got to understand that the death penalty is grace. Grace for the families who are suffering for the loss of the person that they loved. Grace for the person who's going to go meet their maker because they can see the finish line coming and prepare themselves for it. Okay, Jeffrey Dahmer. Most people remember that name. Homosexual, brutalizer, sexual pervert, cannibal. Right? When Jeffrey was sentenced to prison, a husband and wife were struck by the Lord over the fact that no one is ever going to show that man mercy. And they went to the prison and they applied for visitation. And they started going into the jail every day and sharing the grace of Jesus Christ with Jeffrey Dahmer. And Jeffrey surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. And even helped people understand that where his perversion started was in the trash of his neighbor's house as a child where that person was discarding their pornographic magazines. And as a child, he began with a high level of pornographic intake. And he became a sexual pervert as a child, so that by the time he reaches an adult, he's way past all of those appetites. Jeffrey's doing unspeakable things, and these people bring him the grace of God. There's such a dramatic change in his personality and his person, probably the host of demons that left, right? But however we want to classify it, there was such a dramatic change that Jeffrey was actually granted an interview with ABC. They were going to do a full-length expose on how this man became the monster that he was. He was less than 24 hours away from sharing that interview when he was beaten to death by a fellow inmate with a broomstick. Our enemy didn't want the world to hear about the grace that Jeffrey Dahmer received. God is merciful and he's kind. He's going to stone this person again. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 37, speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassel. I know I'm already late, but I want to make this final point and finish chapter 15, you guys, so if you can bear with me. And you shall have the tassels that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments the Lord of the Lord and do them and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your eyes are inclined. And I think if you're honest in this room, every one of us, that's our heart and mind. We're prone to wander. Bind my heart, right? Fetter my heart to thee. And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now I just want to give you a little bit of developmental background. Maybe take me five additional minutes. So just be patient and hear this out. It's important. 
This is all, think about this, this is really climatic stuff for them. About to enter the land, don't trust God, reject his promise, can't go in the land. Try to go in the land on your own, bunch of people get killed, no success, going to wander in the land. Make sure that you perform my sacrifices in the way that I'm promising you. Once you get in the land, don't knowingly violate my law. Darn it, this guy knowingly violated the law. Stone him to death. Okay, now put blue thread in the hem of your garment. That blue thread, every time you look at it, is going to remind you of this clustering moment right here. Right? You wouldn't think about the blue thread in a prideful way, right? You'd look down and think, oh, man. Our failures as a nation, that dude that got stoned to death. Our hearts are like harlots that wander away from God. This blue thread is going to keep me attached to him. <laughs> and so what they do with the blue thread over time is they start embroidering their family insignia on the hem of their robe in blue. And that becomes, oh, well, my lineage is, you know, Levi and Benjamin and this and all of these different tribes. And here's my lineage. And oh, then you see somebody else has that poor, humble lineage of just being part of Reuben. And so you're able to, through your pride, demonstrate, oh, well, I'm of royal lineage. And you're just, you know, that lesser lineage. To the point that when Jesus arrives, right, He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees who broaden the hem of their robe and embroider it so that everyone can see. So you're walking down the street and, oh my goodness, you know, that man's just got all Levi in like six inch block letters all the way around the hem of his robe. And you're supposed to be completely intimidated by his three piece robe <clears throat> and all you got is your carhartt robe on you know with no embroidery you know double layer knee patches some of you know what i'm talking about arrogance what was supposed to humble them and point them to god it's all through the scripture i'm not making this up do you remember ruth Boaz, right? She a Moabitess. She's not supposed to be accepted into the land. Why? Because her lineage was from incest. Right? Shamed in the process. But guess what? She's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Ah, interesting. When she goes to Moab, or excuse me, when she goes to Boaz on the threshing floor, some people imply that they had sex together that evening. Cover me with the hem of your robe. <gasps> no. The lineage. It was a marriage proposal. This woman is saying, include me in your family. Cover me with the hem of your robe. This embroidering of their family lineage on the hem of their robe. Remember the sick woman who said, if I can only touch the hem of his robe. If I can just get in contact with where this man is from, okay, that all points right back here to this humble 
failing moment of God's grace in their lives. Not their pride. Not their arrogance. Not their strutting around. What a bunch of pompous peacocks these guys have become by the time Jesus shows up. Humility is what the Lord wants us to come to. He even wants it embroidered on our clothing. Printed on what we wear. That we belong to Jesus Christ. That we are part of this faith. Maybe it doesn't remind the world, but it reminds you, right? It's just supposed to be blue thread. Something humbly that reminds you, I belong to Jesus Christ. I can't go participate in this moment. I can't talk like this. I can't be with these people. I'm a child of God. God wants us to look plainly at our failures in the way that he covers them with his grace so that we'll continue to walk in humility with him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you very much for your word, the patience. My brothers and sisters, as I gone long this morning, I pray that these messages would have sunk into our hearts and that we would be men and women wherever we are in life that our hearts would return to you. Having been given life by you, that we would in humility bow our lives, our hearts, our minds, our knees to you and submit to you and your lordship. Bring us into that place of humility. Help us to walk in fellowship with you. Help us to comply with your word and your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.